to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I am a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We're a collective of podcasters and scholars who love to think about the integration of biblical studies and theology, and we're so glad that you've tuned in today. We have a really special episode for you today. We have back on the show Professor Sandra Richter. She was on before one of our most loved and listened to episodes, so we're really thrilled to have her back to talk about her book, Stewards of Eden. Before we get started, I just want to say special thanks to Ed Hackey for producing the show and to Rebecca Terhune for her help in marketing and media. So thanks so much to to both of you. Um, Also, a special thanks to James Steinbach for his help with the website and the uh, development of the back end of the OnScript site. Uh, He's done a lot of work there recently, so really appreciate you, James. Uh, If you have the opportunity to give us a ratings on iTunes or wherever you tune into the podcast, we will be your best friends, and you will get a, um, uh, well, I don't know if you'll get it, but you'll be in the running to get uh, an on-script doily. Uh, We've been working hard at developing uh, the right merchandise for our audience, and we've landed on doilies. And so if you give us a ratings and then maybe ping us an email to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, we'll uh, think about uh, maybe sending you an, uh, a special onscript doily because we feel like uh, our listenership, that's the kind of merchandise they want. They don't want mugs. They don't want stickers. They don't want you know, any of that other stuff. Uh, it's, that's, it's probably more the doily crowd. No offense. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And if you would love to support the show as well, uh, please go on over to onscript.study forward slash donate and you can do that. Thanks again. Welcome, OnScript listeners. Today we have Professor Sandra Victor back on the show to talk about her brand new book, Stewards of Eden What Scripture Says About the Environment and Why It Matters. Professor Richter was with us a few years back to talk about ecology in the Bible, as well as her book, Epic of Eden, so it's great to be able to continue this conversation, even though we're eight hours apart. Professor Richter is the Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in California. She has a PhD from Harvard University, and in addition to the books I've mentioned, has authored numerous articles and has several books forthcoming on Isaiah and Deuteronomy. Professor Richter, welcome back. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Matt. Sure. So to my, my first order of business, uh, for, for Christmas this year, I gave my in-laws a copy of your book, Epic of Eden. And it's, it's a book that I feel I can give to any non-specialist but interested in the Bible type reader, and they certainly fit that category. Uh, and they absolutely loved it. And I have to say that they, they even bought three copies for friends of theirs. And so I I come here at the beginning bearing a word of thanks from them for what you've written. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That I, I speak of that book as my soul on paper. So um I you know, I, I I have a parental interest in it and I'm so thrilled when I get to hear that it's really made an impact. We're actually we're working on a second edition, cleaning up some things and updating the graphics. 
uh, trying to squeeze it in between all the other projects. So keep your eye out for that one. Okay, will do. Um, and how have you been faring during lockdown? Have you have you managed to find a, a routine, or uh, how's it been for you? Yeah, I, I can say now that I found a routine, but six weeks ago, not so much. We at Westmont were on spring break when everything hit the fan, and with some really nimble leadership, uh, our administration announced in the middle of spring break, the students aren't coming back. So you get 48 hours, uh, <laughs> contact your students and come up with a plan. So we all had a crash course in online education. Um, and our students have been really game and have hung in there. It's, I, 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 was, I was on uh, Zoom, of course, with them all day on Thursday. Tuesday and Thursday are my long days. And I was encouraging them that they are at the finish line. We're there. All you have to do is lean forward. Just lean forward and fall over the finish line. And I'll make sure you pass. <laughs> so that's kind of where they are. Good. Uh, so you've written this uh, wonderful and relatively short book on Scripture and the environment called Stewards of Eden. And uh, was there a moment when the enormity and gravity of this subject of environmental stewardship really first ripped you? Well, I, I, there are probably several moments. Uh, I, I think we've talked before that I wasn't raised in a Christian household. I uh, really came to faith in my late teens. And uh, I was a part of a very outdoorsy family. So I had always just resonated at such a deep level with the beauty of God's creation and in many ways, I think that expression of general revelation, provenient grace, whatever you want to call it, uh, really drew me to the gospel in the first place. So then I became a Christian, and I became a Christian in a revivalist little home church uh, during the end of the Jesus movement outside of Washington, D.C., and honestly, the, the script changed so dramatically. Uh, the script was now, Jesus is coming back anytime in the next two weeks, uh, give up on raccoons and whooping cranes and start thinking about souls. So I really shelved that passion for a long time. I went into ministry, I went into the academy. It was always there. And so I've started more recycling programs than uh, probably anyone else, you know. But it was always on the side burner. And as I introduced the book and opened the book, uh, there was a season in 2005 at Asbury Theological Seminary where I was directing a community life committee or some such thing for the faculty. And we didn't have a really specific agenda for what we were supposed to be doing. And so I introduced the idea of, hey, here we are in central Kentucky. We're an academic institution. We produce more paper than small countries in Central America. How about we start thinking about a recycling program? And so my committee started talking about it. And then we had our annual missions conference, which really isn't a missions conference. It's more uh, to help our students figure out what global responsibility looks like. So that can mean getting involved is certainly in missions, in um, medical missions, in, in social justice issues, et cetera, et cetera. And the leader of that conference came to me and said, 
I want to talk about environmental issues. And I was like, ears up, eyes open, really? Like publicly from a pulpit? And it was that juncture where I was invited to speak and for the first time in my life was able to speak about stewarding God's creation from a pulpit. And uh, it was, that would be one of the enormous junctures. Yeah, and, and at that point, did you, was your starting point then as it is now, Genesis 1 and 2, as a kind of foundational lens through which we need to think about stewardship? Uh, yes, absolutely. And if you've spent any time with Epic of Eden, you know that that is, uh, that's always, it, it, that is my platform for any level of biblical theology. And I would say that that's the discipline as well. If we're asking the questions of biblical theology, we have to start in the creation narrative because the creation narrative offers us the blueprint of creation according to God's design. And of course, as the redeemed community, that that's our blueprint. And as we think about the great story of redemption and where we're headed and who we are, we as the redeemed community are intended and designed to, uh, within our experience, even in this fallen world, to recreate Eden. I mean, that ultimately is what we're up to. Hmm. It, it's interesting you were talking about joining this a Christian movement when you were uh, a late teen, is that what you said? Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, the, the shift in focus toward a concern for uh, Jesus is going to come back soon and you the, the concern is, is souls. Um, I was reflecting with my wife, Abby, you know, in preparation for this interview and talking about like where we first thought about environmental issues. And, and for me, it was, uh, for both of us, interestingly, it was outside the church. And uh, you know, I got really involved in rock climbing when I was in high school, and and as part of this sort of rock climbing subculture, there's a, a value on environmental care, and so I, I I feel like I picked it up there, and it's not mm -hmm. that because you because yeah. you want those beautiful rocks to be there when you come back next year, yeah, exactly, and the and the landscape around them, and so um and eventually that's you know I was able to integrate that with my Christian faith, so. It's it's just a you know in many ways a sad commentary that for at least both of us and I'm sure lots of others the the concern for the environment gets is something that is picked up outside the church. Why do you think, especially in North America, why do you think that's the case? What are some of the contributing factors there? That would be another uh, juncture for me. I, I, that um, experience at Asbury Theological Seminary with their Kingdom Conference was a biggie. Another one was at Wheaton College, where uh, Kristen Page, who is their um, one of their seasoned biology profs, and I, both sharing an environmental concern, actually proposed a faith and learning grant application uh, to the college, asking if we could teach a course on environmental stewardship co-taught as a theologian and a biologist. And we were approved, and so we launched the first ever course of such a type at Wheaton College, and our title was Environmental Stewardship for the Christian, the Bible, and Biology. That was our title. And uh, at the beginning of the class, so we had about 25 brave souls sign up for this, and Kristen and I haven't done tons of co-teaching, and uh, she's a little afraid of me, and I'm a little afraid of her, even though we're good friends. Um, 
So there we were standing in front of the class, and we launched a standard icebreaker for any faculty member, any teacher of any sort. Here's the icebreaker. Let's go around the circle. Tell us your name, your major, and why you chose to take this course. By the time we got around the circle, every single student said the same thing. And they obviously said a different name and a different major. But when they got to the why did you take this course, every one of them said, I was raised camping or bird watching or rock climbing or I love to surf or I love the Ozarks, fill in the blank. And so I've always felt this passion for God's creation. I have always felt his presence when I have immersed myself in his creation. I've always felt a burden to care for and steward this creation. But I didn't think that as a Christian, I was allowed to integrate my Christian passion and my passion for the environment. I didn't think I was allowed to advocate for the environment and advocate for the kingdom at the same time. Every one of them said that. And then I turned to Kristen, she turned to me, and we both said the same thing. So somehow or another, we, the especially evangelical wing of the church, especially the American wing of the church, have come to a place where we've pigeonholed environmental concern as not our responsibility. And I have, or, or we're not allowed to, to dive in. And I have a lot of theories about that, but I don't want to talk endlessly. But yes, we have definitely pigeonholed it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be curious, though, like, what do, what do you think are maybe one of the contributing factors to that, you know, that feeling among young Christians that they can't integrate these things? Mm-hmm. I would say there are three, and I talk about these in the book. Uh, the first one is the politicalization of environmental concern. In our political climate in the United States, we have come to associate environmental concern with the uh, more radical wing of the Democratic Party. We have also, in our particular nation, come to associate Christianity with the Republican Party. For right or for for right or wrong, ill or good, these are the stereotypes. And so since environmentalism supposedly belongs to the political party that is also pro-abortion, we, the Christian community, have uh, come to consider environmental concern uh, also representative of anti-kingdom morals, anti-kingdom objectives. And I think environmentalism has uh, gotten guilty by association. But as I say in the book over and over again, guys, we are ultimately citizens of another kingdom. I don't answer to the Republican or the Democratic Party. And when I stand before the throne of grace, uh, more than likely my voting record is not going to be on the clipboard. Just guessing. Uh, I, I have to respond to the objectives and the values of my true king. And what I argue in the book, based on biblical theology, based on the blueprint of Eden, is that my true king deeply values the planet that he created, and he has appointed me as a child of Adam to steward it. And that is obvious in the creation narratives. God gives Adam and Eve the garden, and he says, your job is to tend it and to protect it. So that should be my political value. Right. Yeah, it's, it's far more likely that before the throne of grace, um, God will 
do a facepalm and read read out Genesis one and two and say you had one job. So I would I would say that's one, Matt, and it's a big one. I would say the other one, especially as Americans, we have one of the vastest territories of any country on this planet. And as with so many issues of social justice, uh, we don't see the results of our behavior. Just like we don't see the inside of a refugee camp in Darfur, just like we don't see um, the impact of sex trafficking in Thailand, we hear about it, but we don't see it. We also don't typically see that the Ganges River Basin has been declared by the UN a dead system, that the chances of the Ganges River ever being resurrected as a living ecosystem at this point are slim to none. We don't see the skies over Beijing and the fact that a vast majority of their population is struggling with respiratory issues because of the air pollution. We don't see that Madagascar is now 90 plus percent deforested and the widow and the orphan are starving to death in Madagascar because their tropical island has been stripped of its natural flora. So we don't see that stuff. Instead, I look at my backyard and I see, you know, rolling hills. I see this, the Los Padres National Forest. So I think the other thing is we don't see the impact. And I do think our media tends to protect us from the impact as well. Yeah, and if we do see it, I think maybe we dissociate ourselves from it. So we see, we might see smog-filled Beijing and think, wow, they do not know how to take care of their people, you know, or India or Madagascar and just think they, you know, they don't know how to manage things. But to kind of, you know, how would you connect the dots between our consumption and what's happening environmentally around the world? How would you help people bridge those two things? Well, as with all things in being a Christian, our ultimate job is to pursue our own sanctification, right? That ultimately, my, my first job is to submit myself uh, to the image of the one who is the firstborn from the dead. So I, in my own life, have to be transformed. I, in my own life, have to allow my values to become the values of the kingdom. And so, honestly, I think the big picture starts with me. And it starts with how responsible I am. And of course, that's going to take an education. Most people never think twice when they put a plastic bag in the trash. You know, they don't know about the Texas size wad of plastic in the northern Atlantic. They just don't know. So some of it's going to involve education. A lot of it and most of it involves me being conformed to the image of the sun. So once I'm conformed to the image of the sun, just like every other aspect of Christian discipleship, my family will be influenced. My church will be influenced. My community will be influenced. And just as at family camps across this country, we have 17, 18-year-olds going up to the altar and saying, I'm hearing the voice of God whisper in my heart that I belong in Madagascar. So too, that same voice uh, could whisper, as it did to Neil and Danielle Karlstrom, that they belong in Madagascar as environmental missionaries. And uh, in fact, I would say this is um, this is the next wing of missionary work, it, in my humble opinion, is helping people restore their their own ecosystems for the sake of the well-being of the widow and the orphan, ultimately. 
I probably spun off there. No, that's um, great. And, and I mean, re- you, you, you actually uh, helpfully mentioned some, some of those organizations, Christian organizations that are involved in environmental mm. work around the world. So I, I think that's, that's Th- great. And there are a lot of them. Yeah. Well, I, I was curious to hear your thoughts on the, you know, given the recent COVID crisis, it's an interesting time in the sense that creation is having a rest. You know, I'm not minimizing any of the the terrible suffering people are going through, but just if if we focus for a moment on on the rest creation is experiencing, what what has this moment prompted in your thinking about environmental stewardship? Mm-hmm. This has been quite profound for me, actually, Matt. I mean, I'm I'm older than I want to claim, and let me say that in my entire life, I have never seen the community of Earth uh, agree on anything. I, I, I never have. And the thing that struck me the most when the quarantines began is that everyone was doing the same thing. And from the U.S. to India to China to Norway to Brazil, we were all actually focusing our attention on the same thing, doing the same thing, in order to protect our planetary population. The the fact that I would be tempted to get on a plane, not knowing if I was uh, positive or not for COVID-19, and get off that plane in the Ukraine, all of a sudden became an act of universal irresponsibility. And everyone agreed on that. So at first I was really stunned that we could actually unify our efforts toward the protection of the human race. So that was the first wave. And then for me, the second wave was when I started seeing the reports about air quality in China and the reports about air quality in India. You've probably seen these. The Himalayas are visible for the first time in 30, 40 years. Their grandparents sitting out on their front porch saying, I used to be able to see that mountain when I was a child, and now I can see it again. So the third wave for me was putting those two pieces of information together and realizing, hey, we can actually, as a race, coordinate our efforts as multiple tribes and languages and countries to protect ourselves. What we need to do for the fourth wave is actually realize that what we're doing to this planet is endangering all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, part of maybe the more cynical side of me thought, you know, some of the early denial and uh, unwillingness to take action paralleled the kind of denial to the slow emer- the long emergency that is the environmental crisis you know i guess one of the challenges i feel is that to to mobilize globally like that uh takes takes the emergency being in your face in a way that the environmental crisis is not in the face of um like you said North Americans who still enjoy a vast country with lots lots of natural beauty and um, undeveloped land. So, um, you know, how how do you think the church can kind of feel the weight of that? I mean, in a way, that's part of the burden of your your book. What are some of the things that you point to to say, look, this this is affecting us already, and we need to see it. 
Mm -hmm. So let me start answering that question by saying that the chorus, as in it gets repeated over and over and over again throughout the Mosaic Covenant. So after we leave the blueprint of creation and recognize that we as humanity were actually entrusted with this job, like you said, you had one job, just one, um, the the next uh, incarnation of that story is with Israel because they are a landed populace with national boundaries, with a government who are also supposed to be the kingdom of God. So they're, they're a quite unique visual aid for us. And what I demonstrate in the book is that when it comes to sustainable use of the land, both for agriculture or any other purpose, uh, the sustainable and humane uh, treatment of livestock, so domestic creatures and wild creatures, and even issues of environmental terrorism and uh, what I would call bait hunting or uh, abuse of the wild environment, that Israel is constantly commanded, constantly commanded to adapt the long-term view of this situation. So the response of the urgent that abuses and strips is never tolerated in Israelite law. It's always the question, will this land be fertile three generations from now? If not, change what you're doing right now. Uh, environmental terrorism, you cannot cut down trees that produce food in your quest to conquer a city. Stop it. You can't do it. If you come across a bird on the side of the road and she's got young or eggs with her, you can take the young or the eggs, but you can't take the mother too. All of these laws are embedded in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, and the Covenant Code in Exodus. And Matt, let's pause for a moment and think about how old those books are. You know, this is not a result of Earth Day in the 1970s or 60s. This is coming from potentially the second millennia BCE. So I would say that the church needs to recognize this command on God's part that short-term management of the urgent that satisfies my personal itch right now is not a reflection of the character of God. Long-term management for the sake of the world around you and ultimately for the sake of the fact that God is sovereign and you are not, that's a reflection of the character of God. And that feeds into every detail of our lives. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I th keep asking. No, I think that puts a new uh, spin on the, the phrase repeated often in Deuteronomy, as you point out in the book, so that you may live long in the land. You know, the, the emphasis in Deuteronomy is the long game, uh, you know, being able to dwell in this land for generation after generation, um, or to borrow a phrase from Leviticus, the land itself will vomit you out. Um, so you, there's a sense in which if you if you pile up sin upon sin upon the land, the land is finally going to say, I've had enough, and you'll find yourself exiled from it. And we have very concrete examples of this in our own world. If we take a look at Mesopotamia, for example, that's where Iraq and Iran is right now. And everyone has seen a film clip of Baghdad or Mosul or, you know, a similar city somewhere on the news. Well, that region of the world used to be the Garden of Eden. Why isn't it anymore? Well, a major answer, answer would be unrestrained agriculture on the same territory for thousands of years. So the salination of the soil has been raised, the soil has been rendered infertile, um, irresponsible management of the waterways and the forest, etc., etc. So now you're looking at burned out, 
desert area. And all of the experts, again, cited in the book repeatedly, would say that this is the pattern of humanity. We um, exercise our dominion over a, a track of land until it gives us everything it's got, and then we move on. And you can relate this to food deserts in the inner city, to abandoned strip malls in the suburbs. We just move on. We just build a new town. But the problem with our planet is we've gotten to the place where we don't have any frontier left. And uh, we're going to have to circle back and do something with those lunar landscapes that we've created from mountaintop removal coal mining, which all of the scientists are now reporting that that land is completely irretrievable. It, you, we, we cannot retrieve it. We cannot redeem it. It has been reduced to a state where the only thing it can support is foreign grasses. This is the Smoky Mountains, for goodness sake. The most beautiful territory in our country. Yeah, that, And I'm speaking as an East Coaster. Yeah, 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 that was a really sobering yeah. part of the book where um, you described, you know, the, the complete removal of mountains to get at the coal so we can burn it. So there's a double sin there in the sense that it's removing those mountains and then the carbon emission related to the coal burning. And then the the, the silt from that dumped in, I think you, you mentioned some, you know, 6,000 and something uh, waterways in into which all, you know, these mountains are removed, that dirt has to go somewhere. So they put it in valleys and cut off waterways and so on. Yeah, and wipe out stream heads so that it's not just the loss of land, it's the loss of waterways and, of course, of all the flora and fauna dependent on it as well. And you will notice, if you're from that region of the country, that all of the highways steer around that territory. Um, even the flyways steer around that territory. because And, and here's uh, coming back to your original question. The goal was short-term acquisition of monetary gain, not long-term nurturing of an economy and a region that can support itself and its populace. Uh, I do a fair amount in the book on the coal industry in Appalachia and uh, various testimonials and various stories and how these industries have not supported the local populace. They have um, ultimately stolen their um, their treasures and walked away. And we are left with the most voiceless in our country with poisoned water, destroyed homelands, and and no jobs. These jobs do not last. They've been replaced by machinery. Um, yeah, this isn't good for anyone. No, it's not. Um, so uh, you, you talk a lot about care for animals in your book. Uh, I, I was curious if you could just outline some of the ways that Israel's Sabbath law provides a, a kind of challenge to animal exploitation. Yeah, the Sabbath ordinance, I think, is really critical in a Christian's environmental theology, because what is the Sabbath? You stop. You stop for 24 hours out of seven days. You stop producing and you stop consuming. And when you stop according to the scriptures, and I would say um, the testimony of my own life as well, when you stop, you're rejuvenated. When you stop, your creativity returns. When you stop, your relationships are nurtured. Stopping's good. Let's take that stopping idea and apply it more broadly, just like uh, the Book of the Covenant and Deuteronomy do. Not just you rest, but your son and your daughter rest. Not just your son and daughter, but your slave and your servant. Not just your slave and your servant, but your donkey and your oxen. Let 
everybody rest. And, and can I extrapolate it further, as the scriptures do, your agricultural fields rest. And dare I say this in, on an American airwave, but how about your uh, monetary acquisition stop? Yeah, imagine if that Just happened. for a little bit. Yeah, imagine if we actually set boundaries on how much we expected to produce and consume. This is so un-American, but it's so essential. Um, okay, so I'm talking theoretical. You wanted to get to the animals. Um, one of the things I point out is in all of the legal codes of the Old Testament, the livestock are actually included in the covenant code. And that's crazy, right? Again, we're talking maybe 1200 BC, 1000 BC, even if you want to push Deuteronomy up to 700 BC. These people are being ordered in a subsistence economy. When the hungry season lasts for about 60 days is what Baruch Rosen has demonstrated to us. These people are being ordered to allow their uh, livestock, their oxen, their donkeys to rest. And uh, therefore, of course, to cut into their income and their production. This is um, quite radical when you think about it. So we have the law, don't muzzle the ox while he threshes the grain. We have the law, uh, let your donkey and ox rest on the Sabbath day. All of these things are going to uh, truncate a farmer's income and the supply he gets for food. And we want to ask, what type of impact is that going to have on the economy of uh, a particular family? And what ideology does it communicate? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think ceasing for for a day is something that, um, you know, we might think, well, okay, you know, you stop, you stop for a day. But um, these laws, I think, as you point out, really helpfully are exemplary laws as well that embody a total ethos regarding the care for animals and livestock and so on. Um, So to take the, you know, non-Sabbath law, but not taking a mother with her young, if you find a bird, it's just one principle that is meant to be embodied widely in a society. So uh, in in a whole range of ways beyond that. So there's there's grounds for extrapolating, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes. And these are principles. And interesting, they're not just principles of law, they're principles of wisdom. Principles of wisdom. What is wise? What is a wise way to approach your life? You know, the ultimate self-help book, you know, Seven Habits for Highly Successful People. Well, one of those habits, according to the biblical text, is Sabbath. So I do a lot with humane animal husbandry in the book, uh, partly because we as individual citizens actually have a lot of impact on how our country produces the food we eat. And the impact we have is how we shop, how we buy, and how we vote. And at this point in time, since what is known uh, in the records as the Green Revolution, which launched in the 60s and 70s, we've moved almost exclusively into an industrial model of agriculture with the thought that that will produce more food more effectively and feed our populace more efficiently. And those, of course, are, are good ambitions. And uh, Norman Borlaug, who's considered the father of the Green Revolution, actually received a Nobel Peace Prize for coming up with the ideas of monoagriculture and chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides and, and updated irrigation methods. But what he didn't count on or what we didn't follow through with is that these same methods actually wind up stripping the fertility of our own soil and so grossly 
torturing the animals that serve us by becoming um, the bacon with our eggs and the hamburgers on the grill. And of course, most Americans, most citizens don't realize this is even going on. Yeah. I, I mean, I was thinking about when, I don't know if you remember a, a few years back when Michael Michael Vick, who was a, um, he was a quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, he was caught in, in some some kind of uh, dog fighting ring, and um, you know the horror people uh, experienced and exhibited at the fact that he was part of this dog fighting because you know imagining our dogs fighting each other it just you know was was terrible. Um, but this is going on. You know the, the the torturing of animals, as you point out in the book, is going on all the time at a huge scale with chickens and pigs and and cattle. I was going to say, we've come to the place where, according to old statistics, 95% of the animals that reach our dinner tables have been raised in industrial settings. And industrial settings, as is detailed in the book, involves thousands of animals packed into warehouses where they never see the light of day. They never touch the dirt. Uh, They're not allowed to pursue any of their natural behaviors. And their raising is only further traumatized by the method of slaughter. But we've, the media has protected the um, well, the media driven, I'm sure, by corporation money. I, you know, who knows what's happening behind the curtain. But we, we have something called ag-gag rules on the books in many of our states, which make it illegal, illegal to film or photograph a, a, slaughter, a, a slaughterhouse in the United States. So in the land of the free and the home of the brave, if you stop on the side of a highway on public land and pull out your cell phone and start, start a video of any one of these industrial agricultural facilities— you can expect the police to show up. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You told the story of that one uh, woman who was filming the inside of a some kind of slaughterhouse and, and having seven police show up, uh, and you know, basically a high five the uh, the managers of this industrial farm and and ask her what she's doing. Um, so I, I want to just switch gears for a moment. See if you're up for a speed round. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question and just sort of off the cuff responses is what we're looking for here. Okay, first of all, have you ever hugged a tree? <laughs> um, yes, I have, but not since I was a child. Okay. And um, have you ever kissed a chipmunk? Uh, yes, I have. And uh, I, I need to let the VeggieTales guys know about this. Um, yeah. I, I rescued a chipmunk from my cat once and uh, got it cleaned up and uh, kissed it before I released it. So, yeah, <laughs> did that. My dog had a chipmunk in her mouth one time and didn't know what to do with it. And she let it go. It played dead and then took off running. Uh-huh. It was brilliant. Um, yeah. Have you ever uh, chained yourself to a tree as an act of protest? No. No, I haven't okay. done that. I, I had a professor who, who did that. I won't, I won't name who it is. but um, Well, apparently at Harvard Divinity, there's a beautiful old oak tree that was right outside the library. And all the arborists came and said the tree was dead. It needed to come down. It was rotten on the inside. I, I'm sure it was several hundred years old. And uh, there was such a protest um, of people chaining themselves to the tree. But from that very oak tree, here's my speed round. Um, When I was there as a student, I'm standing there talking to a friend and I hear a thud and I go trotting over to find out what the thud is. And the thud is a baby squirrel. 
that apparently has been abandoned by its mother for one reason or another and has come crawling out to try to find food, has fallen, hit a root, knocked itself out, and I had just seen an episode on ER where they did CPR to a lab rat. So I did CPR to a baby squirrel, and it worked. There it is. Oh, my goodness. That is brilliant. Dropped Um, it off at a vet. I was going to ask, like, how, yeah, I mean, how, so the, you, you got enough detail from ER to f- actually know how to administer CPR. Uh, kind of, sort of. I think I was, I was learning, like, infant CPR somewhere as well. Yeah. So I gave it a That's shot. That's amazing. Well, yeah. Um, uh, I, I didn't see how to do CPR to, to squirrels in the back appendix of your book. So maybe no. for the next edition. Uh, do you have uh, <laughs> a favorite novel? Oh, I have many favorite novels. Uh, I would think if I have to list just one, it's going to have to be The Lord of the Rings. Um, I spent most of my adolescence in The Lord of the Rings. Um, That was a darn good one. I was just looking up, actually, the other day for another interview, a book that influenced me a lot as a child, and that was Black Beauty. Did you ever read Black Beauty? Uh, No, I only saw the movie. (laughs) Okay. Well, I've not seen the movie, but it's, I mean, it's an old book. It was written, I think, in the late 1800s. Anna Sewell, I think, was the author. And I found out by looking it up on that source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, that she herself uh, actually was an animal activist. And the reason that she tells Black Beauty's story from the first person is to help humans start empathizing with the animals that serve them. That's amazing. Um, Okay, what are you reading right now that we need to know about? Um, Believe it or not, I'm reading Uncle Tom's Cabin right now um, because that got skipped in my elementary education and uh, my junior higher is reading it. Um, I'm I'm actually, I am reading a lot on, on race issues right now because it's a faith and learning project for me. And I'm also working on a curriculum on Psalms. So I'm reading a lot of Psalms stuff too. Fantastic. Um, what's your favorite movie? Ooh. Okay. I love Hook, Peter Pan. I love A League of Their Own. I can watch it 16 times. I'm an old injured athlete. Um, and what else do I love? It probably if you I, if you mention them, I would know. Yeah. I mean, did you actually like the Lord of the Rings movie? Given that that was your one of your favorite novels, uh, I have a love hate relationship going with those movies. Um, I I kind of feel that a lot of a lot of the character development that made me love the book so much isn't in the films, especially Aragorn. I got to write this real fun little piece in response to a Phil Riken lecture. For those who don't know, Phil Riken's the president of Wheaton College. And he did a book on finding Messiah in Middle Earth. And so he was presenting uh, Jesus as an amalgamation of Gandalf, Aragorn, and Frodo. And he invited me to give the response to the Gandalf part um, and talk about the office of the prophet. And so I actually got to put into print and say out loud for the first time in my life that I think the first time I ever caught a glimpse of the face of the Messiah was when I caught a glimpse on the face of Aragorn. And that book uh, prepared my heart to... Um, be able to hear the gospel and have a hero who actually can step into this world and fix it. Yeah. Um, 
I may have asked this question last time we met, but uh, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Oh, well, I think the name theology needs to die. That would be a lot of my academic pursuit. Yeah, that was, that was your, uh, your dissertation, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And it's it's dying, but it's dying a very slow death. The name theology basically supports the second stage of Wellhausen's evolution of Israel's deity, and it's got to go. Um, gosh, other ideas. The idea that God just, uh, Deuteronomy, there's no sense of God's presence in the temple, but only his name's there. He's in heaven, right? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's all tangled. What I find so often, and part of this, I think, is the result of being an evangelical with classic training. Um, ideas get embedded and they, they get tangled up with all sorts of other um, ideologies and paradigms of thought. And we tend too often to only look at the top layer. And we don't understand where the ideas are coming from. And therefore, the impact the ideas are going to have down the road. And having been through a classic education as someone who presupposes that God exists and he still interacts with human history meant I had to question a lot of these paradigms. And so I'm kind of predetermined to, or pre-wired maybe yeah. to do that sort of thing. Um, Name theology is one of those. Yeah. I Okay. So uh, one of the things that you know is important uh, for, for authors uh, and something we really value at Onscript is to promote good scholarship and books. And sometimes those books are books like yours that we've read and, and really enjoy. Sometimes they're books that we've never read and the content we do not know. Um, so uh, nevertheless, we persist. So um, we, I went to the um, random word generator on Google and it came up with the word organ. And, and then I, I plugged that into the, Google, the uh, Amazon book search section and I came up with a, a book that I, I'm wondering if you could give it a rating um, uh, out of five stars and, and then explain why. Okay, so the title of the book is Understanding the Pipe Organ, A Guide for Students, Teachers, and Lovers of the Instrument by John R. Shannon. How many stars do you give it and why? Wow, I guess it'd be good if I if I knew what a pipe organ was. Oh, a pipe organ. Is that the big organ at yeah. the front? Of, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, let's give it a five. Let's go for it. Okay. Okay. You you enjoy the pipe organ. Yeah. Um, uh, limericks or haikus? Mm, limericks. Okay. Um, I don't have one uh, to to read to you, but my daughter wrote a haiku this morning, so I'll read that to you. Let's hear it. You know, they're often related to changing of seasons. So she had to write a, a lockdown haiku. All right. She's eight. Spring okay. is around me. Everything is springing up. I am stuck in here. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> this and then morning, my, I, yeah, I, gave, I gave an extra credit project to my intro students. I asked them to write a psalm. And of course, they need to know what kind of psalm they're writing and parallelism and all that sort of stuff. And I was grading them this morning. And they're almost, a lot of them are laments about uh, the COVID-19 um, shutdown. They're really quite lovely. Yeah. yeah, I, th I, I think like that, I like the haiku though. Yeah, that needs think, to go up on a website. <laughs> I think it is actually going on someone's website. Um, so, oh, actually, you mentioned lament. Uh, you know, that's that ties into your discussion of Romans eight, um, and you you talk a lot about uh, the importance of that passage, um, uh, and, and also the 
the need for the Old Testament when it comes to environmental ethics. And I've and I've always thought that in the back of my mind, but you you really crystallized that for me, that one of the things that happens when we cut off the Old Testament from the New or downplay the Old Testament um, is that we lose that kind of land theology that undergirds the entire theology of the Bible. But we do see sort of environmental ethics, you could say, or environmental stewardship um, theology creeping up in different places in, in the New Testament uh, as well, Romans 8 being one of them. Um, so wh- what's where do we go, you know, in, in addition to Romans 8 to to see a concern for the environment uh, in the New Testament? I mean, is because I guess one approach is that in the Old Testament is sort of the land of Israel and this political entity. It's all spiritualized in the New Testament. It's, uh, you know, it's God's no longer kind of uh, focused in that way with a particular land. So let me say that that problem that you're naming would be third on my list of three as to why Christians have separated stewardship in the environment from their sense of calling as the redeemed community. You know, we know as the redeemed community, we're supposed to stand as a witness against societal norms that are pushing people away from the values of the kingdom. We know that. And at its best, the church does that left and right. And I point out in the book that most of the hospitals and orphanages on this planet were founded by Christians because of our embrace of that responsibility. So when we get to the New Testament, we stop hearing about land stewardship. We stop hearing about humane treatment of animals. We stop hearing about environmental terrorism and all these very practical aspects of land management. And we start hearing passages that talk about the destruction of of the earth. And uh, a lot of folks have been schooled in this idea that the earth is disposable, that the planet, all of its creatures, all of its uh, uh, flora, fauna are going to be burned up in the end. And so since it's going to be burned up in the end, shouldn't we be investing our resources in uh, hanging on to what really counts, which would mean souls. And so there's been this posture especially in evangelical Christianity, or could I say revivalist Christianity, that let's get to it. Let's save souls. And if we have to cut down a rainforest to do it, so be it, because the rainforest is going to burn. So this, uh, I th- this I would argue, is a misunderstanding, and so would the best New Testament scholars out there. Um, N.T. Wright, Colin Gunton, Ben Witherington, Doug Moo, um, they would all absolutely affirm that the reason the New Testament isn't talking about land management and animal care is because it's actually a really short book that has one very specific focus, and that is the arrival of the second Adam to live, die, and resurrect so that we, the new community, can be birthed. Whereas uh, the Old Testament is interacting with a community that actually has livestock and fields and all that sort of stuff. So that would be one reason the New Testament doesn't have as much to say. Um, but the uh, the other thing is these passages that talk about uh, the earth being burned up. And Second Peter is a good example. And Thessalonians, I'm trying to pull one up for you here. Um, and in these passages, we're hearing about fire. We're hearing about devastation. Uh, we're 
hearing about the, the world being um, rolled up like a scroll. So um, Acts chapter 2, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, <clears throat> or uh, talking about the language of fire and destruction in Second Peter. Um, these are the passages that people look at and they say, well, I'm sorry, the earth isn't going to last, so I shouldn't have to care for it. So I offer a treatment in the book of another passage, which is Romans chapter 8, as you've mentioned, and how it speaks of the resurrection of the planet. And it speaks of the resurrection of the planet in juxtaposition of the resurrection of humanity, which is a really big deal in the New Testament. So I'll just read this out loud for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, i.e. frustration, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our bodies. So what Paul's talking about is the resurrection of our physical bodies being rejoined to our already resurrected immaterial bodies, and that being the ultimate goal of the whole salvation plan. And he puts right in there, in our faces, the fact that the resurrection of this planet is also essential to that plan. And a lot of Christians don't see that part. And a lot of Christians, especially my students, think that salvation is all about fire insurance, right? Get me out of hell and maybe three people I like, and then Jesus is done. Whereas what we see in the great story of redemption, uh, this entire planet is going to be resurrected. And therefore, we have responsibility for it. And, you know, honestly, even if it wasn't going to be resurrected, we would still have responsibility for it. Just like we have responsibility for unsaved orphans and unsaved widows. We don't get to walk away from that responsibility. But Paul is really clear on that. And these other passages, not to talk too long on this topic, that speak of the uh, burning of the earth, they're, they're all classed as apocalyptic predictions of what the Old Testament would call the day of Yahweh and what the New Testament calls the parousia, the second coming of Christ. So when we read those passages, we need to read them with the Old Testament lexicon and recognize that when they speak of fire and signs in the heavens and signs on the earth, they're using an Old Testament lexicon to speak of judgment, not necessarily annihilation. So just like when the book of Revelations talks about locusts flying around with human faces, it doesn't necessarily mean locusts with human faces. This is an apocalyptic yeah. symbol. Stars falling from heaven, etc. Yeah. 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 So too are these passages uh, out of Second Peter and out of Thessalonians. Yeah. They're using kind of poetic, um, dramatic, cataclysmic imagery to mm -hmm. make, uh, make a, a specific point. 
Yeah. I just I just actually had kind of a knockdown drag out on a radio interview yesterday of the Bob Dutko show in Detroit, Michigan. And he was absolutely committed to Second Peter and the burning up of the earth and and fully believed that that uh, delivered us from responsibility to the planet because it was going to be annihilated. And we'll see if he ever invites me back because um, I, I don't go down easy. <laughs> It's interesting to be committed to that. It's one thing to sort of like, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I could talk a lot longer about uh, what you're doing in this book. I, I do want people to read it. So I, I strongly encourage people to pick up a, a copy of, of this book, Stewards of Eden, um, which I think is is, uh, is excellent re- an excellent resource. And I think one that um, people could give to Christians who are maybe on the fence about this or just not, they don't have a, a framework for it. Uh, maybe they have, like you you did when you were younger, a hunch that this matters, but feel like it's not reconcilable with their faith. So thank you so much for writing this. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Can can I say, Matt, that's actually why I wrote this book. Uh, I wrote it brief. Uh, so it's, it's, it's 100 pages. Uh, it's full of case studies that make these issues real. Um, so I, I talk about the... Uh, basic extinction of the black bear in the Delta of Mississippi. I talk about mountaintop removal in Appalachia. Um, I talk about Punjab, India, and the impact of industrial agriculture. So there's lots of case study, lots of um, personal testimony coming from various people who are affected by it. But my ultimate goal was to be able to assure the faithful who are dedicated to their Bibles. And, you know, these are our people, right, who are unsure that this particular issue belongs in their portfolio of what I stand up for as a Christian. I wrote it for those people, and I, I wrote it specifically not to go beyond the biblical text. This is environmentalism from a biblical theology. It doesn't talk about climate change, for example, because, you know, climate change doesn't show up in the Bible. So it's not in there. Uh, but it is, my hope was to give a gift to students, their parents, their grandparents, who are asking the question, does my Bible speak to this issue? And I believe with all my heart that, yes, our Bibles do speak to this issue. And how are we going to respond to it? Okay, that's going to be a matter of personal conscience. I do, the, the conclusion of the book, as you've seen, is all recommendations for how you living in a suburb somewhere outside Chicago in America can actually take action. But but that is the design. So let's say a Christian is convinced that this is a serious issue that needs addressing. How can they take action and what, you know, how can Christians be part of leading change in the area of environmental stewardship? Mm, great question. Matt, thank you for asking that question. What I want to say in response is I want to read a quotation. And this is coming from a man named Gus Speth. He was the chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality under President Jimmy Carter. And he's, hold, he's held a half dozen really influential offices um, in the Environmental Protection Agency and et cetera, et cetera. Let me read this quote. He states, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. 
and we scientists don't know how to do that. That quote so arrests me because I'm listening to a natural scientist tell me that he doesn't have the answers. I'm listening to a natural scientist telling me I need a moral revolution and I don't know how to do that. Well, who on this planet does know how to accomplish a moral revolution? Who were the earliest abolitionists? Who were the first uh, advocates for women's suffrage? Who are the ones who have been speaking up for orphans and widows and the outsider for millennia? And that would be the church. So I hear this man calling on me, calling on us to step up to the plate and do what the church does best, which is stand as a witness in a world that has lost its moral compass and to offer it a moral compass. And if your listeners will read this book and see how environmental degradation impacts all the things they love the most and will be willing to step into that place, I think that once again, we can hold back the darkness. I, I truly believe it. Um, not forever, not exhaustively, only Jesus is going to be able to take care of that, but we can make a difference. And in the back of the book, I do offer a list of really practical things that anyone can do in response, especially pastors who are busy administrating four or five million dollar facilities and have a voice in so many different hearts. There's lots of curriculum out there. There's lots of things we can do. And in doing it, can I just tag this last thing on? Can I say that every young adult around me as, as a college professor, um, every family in my neighborhood is worried at some level about the environment. And they think that we are a bunch of isolationist, Bible-thumping fundamentalists who don't care what a witness it would be to the world if we start deploying this investment in both our local and our um, global neighborhood and stood up as a witness once again of the moral compass of the kingdom of God. So we can do it, and I want us to do it so badly. Well, that's a, a powerful challenge to end on. Uh, Professor Richter, I want to thank you so much for your time uh, with OnScript today. Mm. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me and for uh, bringing this issue up front and for putting in a plug for my book. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.